Dr. Frank Cusimano has a doctorate in nutrition and metabolic biology from Columbia University and is currently a medical student at the Arizona College of Osteopathic Medicine. Having done his PhD on the gut microbiome, a hot topic right now, we dive into the science of prebiotics, probiotics, postbiotics, and antibiotics. He teaches us what we can actually recommend to our patients to help them with GI upset while on antibiotics. How does the gut microbiome influence inflammatory bowel disease? How can the gut actually influence our brains? Now, a previous guest discussed how the colon is the window to the soul, and turns out there's science behind that. Having been a sponsored athlete as an adult, Dr. Kusumano is currently a medical student uniquely blending his understanding of biochemistry with human physiology and human potential. In college, he received his BS and MA from SMU in chemistry and biology, and then went on to complete an MS from Johns Hopkins in biotechnology, concentrating in bioinformatics. All that in addition to his PhD from Columbia. He is the host of Surviving Medicine Podcast and a regular contributor to Medscape and Doximity. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Frank Cusimano, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's an honor. Well, an honor. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> All right. So let's get started. Give us the short version of your PhD thesis. Yeah. So I guess I should have introduced with that or a second ago that when I say, when you called me a doctor, Dr. Kusumano, technically it's a, it's a PhD. So I have a doctorate in nutrition and metabolic biology. And I am in medical school, so I'm doing additional training. I'm a third-year medical student or seventh year, um, if you add the PhD to it. And I have my PhD is in nutrition and metabolic biology. And I'm uniquely trained in that I'm the only medical professional, I will be the only medical professional with that specific PhD because it's the only PhD of that kind that is housed in an institute of medicine, uh, which is very unique um, and that I I was lucky and fortunate to be able to do that. But my PhD thesis was on the gut microbiome. So in the nutrition area, obviously the bacteria in our stomach and in our small intestine and colon plays a huge role in the pathophysiology of many disease processes. But my specific topic that I worked on, you know, over the course of my PhD career was I engineered bacteria to modulate intestinal physiology, you know, deal with inflammation and also modulate behavior along the microbiome gut-brain axis, so specifically engineering bacteria to serve a specific physiological process in, um, for me, the most work that I did was in the large intestine. So GMO for the gut microbiome? Essentially GMO for the gut microbiome, and that is the right way to to think about it because we were using genetically modified um, bacteria to serve specific purposes. I think that's going to make some people's head explode because you've got this whole, and we're going to talk about this, but this whole area of pseudoscience that's that's orbiting around the actual science. And these are a lot of hippy-dippy people that are non-GMO. And then they're finding out that the person who's one of their you know, one of the people that, that they look up to because of the research that you've done in the microbiome, you've actually used GMO 
in this sacred area of the gut microbiome. I think there's some people that, yeah, their head's going to explode. Okay. So can you give us any more detail about what that will do? I know there were, you know, for some time there was, you weren't actually talking to people about it because it was so hush hush. Correct. Yeah, there was, I mean, there is still, there's patents filed on our research that we were doing. It was at Columbia university. The patents are, have gone through, so I can talk about it. We haven't published our paper on it. We have a big one that's in revisions that one we're really excited about. So I may spare out some of the good details, but I'm definitely going to talk about it. And I think when, when I introduce the microbiome, when we talk about the microbiome, the microbiome is something that, you know, is, has to be specified for location. So when you're talking about the microbiome, it's just a collection of bacteria and genes that make up uh, microbes or any type of uh, bacteria or fungi or flora on a surface. And so I say gut microbiome, it's specifically talking to the gastrointestinal tract, versus the colonic microbiome is just the microbiome found in the colon. And they all are very different. They serve different purposes. They have very different compositions and they have very different genetic profiles. And I think that that's more of the important part. The research is, as you said, rife with pseudoscience. And it's, it's rife with pseudoscience, not for the specific reason that we think about pseudoscience and just being blatantly wrong. It's that their early on microbiome research was very naive, and it was done in a way that our tools now are showing us that a lot of the original research we did was not specific enough, or it didn't hone in on the, the level of specificity or detail on the research that we needed. A uh, case in point that you may think about is none of the none of the labs doing microbiome research actually started as microbiome research labs. They typically did not. They started as gastroenterology, gastro, gastroenterologists, or microbiologists that wanted to do microbiome research. And so most of the PIs, the primary investigators, were not people that trained doing these techniques. It, I hear researchers talk about the gut microbiome extensively or, you know, or medical professionals talk about the gut microbiome and how they use it for all sorts of treatments. But when you ask them if they've ever sequenced someone's fecal samples, or if they've ever sequenced anyone's gut microbiome, typically they'll say no. And that's the, that's the major issue that, uh, that I want to, you know, people to understand is that the techniques and tools that we're using to study the bacteria in your stomach, the tools are advancing so rapidly that things that we were doing five years ago are, you know, they're not only rudimentary, but they give us misinformation. And so understanding where that misinformation lies, and it all, it comes down to sequencing techniques, to genomic preps, to understanding how to analyze the data. The changes that we're seeing in, in the past few years just showed us that our initial findings were sometimes wrong. And that's the important part, I think, for a lot of the microbiome research. Well, there are labs out there that if you send them a sample of your gut microbiome, uh, right? You give them a little fecal sample. Mm -hmm. They will tell you things about yourself. Mm -hmm. um, they will. Like, this is what you should be eating more of. This is what you should be eating less of. This is what diseases you're at risk for. And that, to me, sounds like they're, that sounds like there could be some fear-mongering and capitalizing on lack of science literacy. Or... Am I just an old curmudgeon uh, that don't that doesn't believe in new areas of science? No, I mean you're not. <laughs> Most of that is is accurate from your perspective. And those companies dealt with a lot of litigation early on, early on, and now they're having to use specific wording or they're having to do things in a specific way where they can't talk about medical conditions 
or they have to give it to a third party to talk about medical conditions. And the reason why is that, you know, we, in, in 2007, the, I think it was the NIH decided that they were going to put like 170 some million dollars into understanding the gut microbiome so that we can understand what was best for patients and what was the healthiest microbiome. And their conclusion after five years in 2012 was that, you know, we spent $170 million and all we decided was that there is no one correct microbiome. And in fact, it wasn't which bacteria you have in your stomach. So when you, when you send a sample to a lab to sequence your microbiome, they're going to tell you not how many bacteria or which bacteria are there. They're going to tell you what relative ratio or population of bacteria are there. And they're only going to go as deep as maybe the genus level but typically they stay at the family level or, or the phyla level. But the difference between two bacteria in the same genus is, you know, night and day. It's not even the different, I mean, it's the difference between me and an elephant. Like it, it's, it's really is that far. And what matters more is what genes are present in someone's microbiome, right? So out of all the bacteria in your stomach, each bacteria has a number of genes and they have, you know, their DNA which genes are present and which ones are being trans, you know, translated into proteins that can do sp serve a specific function, that is way more relevant than which bacteria are there. Because the difference between you, you know, an E. coli in your stomach versus an E. coli in my stomach, well, it depends, A, which genus is it? It depends which species is it? And then even two bacteria that are the same species may be as far as a rhino and an elephant and the genes in those are so different that um, it's really hard to say. And so, that, you know, a lot of those tests, I would say, I don't recommend for, for that reason. So what are, what are some other misconceptions that are out there about the gut microbiome? Yeah, misconceptions of the gut microbiome is probably the most fun thing to go over. And a lot of it, you know, is, is around fermented foods like probiotics. Everyone wants to know which probiotics they should take or if they're useful. Well, probiotic, if you look at the definition of it, it's a live organ, a microorganism that when you know taken in adequate amounts, it has some type of health benefit. Well, most bacteria over-the-counter probiotics don't have, A, they haven't been tested to show health benefits, and most of them aren't living anymore or they don't reconstitute because most probiotics are pill forms. And most pill forms, that means the bacteria has been lyophilized, basically dried completely. When placed back into a host, they can come back and become active, but over time, their efficacy drops drastically, and a lot of them won't survive the you know the transition from your your mouth all the way down to let's say your small intestine or your colon, where your colon is actually where most bacteria are most useful. Most of the microbiome until you get to the colon, you know it has some function, and there's definitely been some some things that we've learned, but the majority of the bacteria that at least is beneficial or that can provide a lot of metabolic benefits actually has to get all the way down to the colon, which studying that in humans is very difficult. So like if you go to GNC or CVS and buy probiotics because you're worried about getting an upset stomach after antibiotics, or in the situation of myself and our listeners, you're recommending that to your patients, what you're ultimately recommending is dust, right? So what's contained in the pills of probiotics that you're buying over the counter, lyophilized bacteria, that doesn't make it to all the way to the place it needs to be. It doesn't sound like that's really what's recommended or, or that would be helpful in any way. 
Correct. And this is where there's a lot of good research on it um, to show that most probiotics for almost every instance isn't recommended because A, we either don't know enough or they haven't shown any efficacy. I don't take probiotics. I've been studying the microbiome you know, for five plus years, but I don't take a probiotic supplement. And if anything, the only thing I recommend to most people is just to increase the amount of fiber in their diet. We all know about the different types of fibers, whether it's soluble or insoluble, and they both have you know, different motility benefits. But in terms of the gut, as many different types of fiber that you can consume feed the bacteria that are already there. And instead of focused on trying to introduce new strains or new bacteria from pills on the, on the shelf, it's more important to go to, you know, the, the part of your grocery section where the vegetables are and buy different high fiber foods. Some of them are the ones that are high in, you know, a, a fiber called inulin, which is one of oligosaccharides that really does help your bacteria live. That's basically the food that they eat. And going to buy some foods like leeks or bananas or spinach or kale or onions or garlic, anything that can be used for your bacteria as food is actually way better than taking any pills over the sh- on the shelf. So what we should be telling our patients is if they're on antibiotics, they should eat more fruits and vegetables. Yes. And this is actually- And when great- they're off antibiotics, they should also be eating more fruits and vegetables. Frank, this is groundbreaking. No, right? It's, it's totally groundbreaking. And it's actually really interesting. So it used to be that when someone you gave someone antibiotics, the recommendation was to take a probiotic to help you know your bacteria bolster it up so that it could return after the antibiotics to you know to a faster position. Two you know two papers came out from one of the one of the leading experts in this area, and they actually found that when you when you take an antibiotic, it does wipe out you know a lot of the bacteria. But taking a probiotic along with that antibiotic actually delays progression of the bacteria coming back that you normally colonize. Why is that? Well, most probiotics that you take over the counter don't colonize your gut. Could they potentially be beneficial for a short period of time after you take them? Yes, there's possible. But the bacteria that is present after you take an antibiotic, you need to re, you need to get that bacteria that's still there that survived the antibiotic. You need to get it to build up its amount and need it to replicate and to survive. And by introducing additional probiotics, what you're doing is you're basically competing it for resources. So think of it like, you know, like a war. If you get rid of half of the bad guys, or if you get rid of, rid of the majority of the good guys, you don't want to throw more random soldiers that can't speak the same language in there. No, what you want to do is you want to let the, let the good ones you know, start to grow and repopulate and get back up to speed. And that's the best way to do it is by increasing your fiber intake when you take a uh, antibiotic to let the good bacteria grow and repopulate. So this is completely different from any of the questions that I sent you, but it just, and if you don't feel comfortable answering it, I completely understand. But with regards to the increasing fiber in your diet, there's a lot of, there are a lot of fiber supplements. There's a lot of food that has increased the amount of fiber from other sources like protein bars with added fiber or Fiber One makes a, a breakfast bar with added fiber, but it's not like it's eating an apple where the fiber is innate to the food. It's been extracted from somewhere and put somewhere else. Do you know if there's any difference between actually eating it in in its raw form versus have it having been extracted? Now, I know what the hippy-dippy answer is going to be, which is, yes, you should eat it in its natural form because that's where it's supposed to be. But ultimately, you know, does the gut know the difference between the fiber that starts out in an apple 
or the fiber that was extracted from an apple, put in a breakfast bar, and then consumed that way? So this is a great question. And I love this question because it talks, you have to use real science to answer it, but it's confusing science. And so I'll try to explain this to the listeners. Taking exogenous fiber from any type of supplement, powder, or bar, for some reason in our gut, it doesn't have the same effect as eating whole foods. Why is this? Okay, so so what the, the conclusion has come from at least most of the experts is that when you eat fiber, you're doing it for mainly two reasons, to feed the bacteria that are in your stomach, but also because fiber is broken down by bacteria in our stomach into beneficial secondary metabolites. Some of those are short-chain fatty acids like butyrate, isobutyrate, acetate, propionate. And for some reason, those bacteria that produce these short-chain fatty acids or that produce these beneficial secondary metabolites, they have to be present to do this. But people that don't eat a naturally high-fiber diet don't have these bacteria present at high enough quantities to produce the benefits that you need from these secondary metabolites. So just taking, you know, having a poor diet or eating, you know, no fiber in your diet, but taking a powder, it doesn't actually serve the same benefit. You get added benefit if you can actually eat a high fiber diet, and then they see an additional benefit if they are taking fiber on in a supplement form, which typically in that case, it isn't needed because you're already eating the fiber. So So you can't eat McDonald's and then put some Metamucil in your Coca-Cola. Yeah, well, it may it may help you on a constipation front, but it <laughs> won't help you get the you know it won't help you you know establish a healthy gut microbiome, and it won't help you get the secondary benefit the the benefits from the secondary metabolites that are being con- the fibers being converted by the bacteria to to produce you know the beneficial compounds in your gut. But if you take some Metamucil and you've just eaten a salad, then that Metamucil is beneficial. Cor- correct. That's what that's what it implies. And the metamucil, I can't remember what the exact formula in there, what the fiber is, but the one that most of these research has been done on is inulin, which is typically the prebiotics that you see on the shelf. So when we're talking about fiber, um, not only are we talking about the fiber for motility, but we're mainly talking about what you consider on the shelf as prebiotics. And that is a term that's been thrown around a lot recently on shelves and on supplements and on the news as being way more beneficial than probiotics. Okay. So, so what we should be recommending is, and this is where a place where I know you, you mentioned before the show, you're reluctant to give recommendations because you're still a medical student, but you do have a PhD. So what you're saying, you're recommending we eat more fruits and vegetables, but specifically if the patients are looking to decrease their GI upset, they, they should, they should do that more so maybe than they usually do. And I don't think you should feel uncomfortable making that recommendation to anybody. Yeah, right? I think there's, there's only yeah, <laughs> there's only about one or two really solid indications for adding probiotics, and one that's for the treatment of um, diarrhea resistant diarrhea in in you know adolescents or, or children. Um, probiotics have been shown to be pretty have pretty good efficacy depending on which probiotic it is. So that's still definitely a, an indication, and I think pedi- pediatricians will know that. Although the research in the past few years has gone to say maybe that's not the case, but I think the jury's still out, so I would say that that's still probably a general guideline that a lot of people are following. And then also for patients that have C. diff, patients that have C. diff that are receiving antibiotics, probiotics can prevent not only C. diff, but they can also prevent the recurrence of people that have had C. diff in the past. So I think that those are kind of the three main indications that we're still seeing a good use of probiotics in a clinical setting. 
But other than that, to patients that are having some GI upset, let's look at your, your water intake, your, your overall fiber intake and your fruits and vegetables and go from there, as opposed to just recommending probiotics blanketly to say, oh, well, probiotics are going to help your gut immediately, if that makes sense. So you had mentioned before, rather than consuming lyophilized bacteria, to actually consume something that's fermented so there's still bacteria in there. So what about things like yogurt or, you know, the big craze now is kombucha or maybe even a beer with still some yeast in the bottom, right? What, uh, what about consuming that directly? So in most of the, in most of the sense, um, most of those haven't been shown to have good efficacy long-term or in the clinical setting have not been shown to be effective at all. We see, we hear that, you know, yogurt's great, but when you look at the actual really good science that's being done on these, we don't see any benefit. And there hasn't been there hasn't been a good systematic review to show that the research is conclusive that they're beneficial. There's actually most of them saying that they're inconclusive and they haven't helped at all or they've seen very little. Now, most of the time for dairy-based yogurts, the reason why they say they help motility is tends to be less from the bacteria that you're introducing but for patients that have constipation that take their yogurt to help them, you know, have modal, have, you know, better bowel movements, most of that tends to be because most patients are slightly uh, lactose intolerant. And so the dairy in there will instigate you to have a, have a bowel movement. And that sometimes has been pretty, has shown, shown pretty good efficacy, but it's not from the probiotics in the yogurt. It's from that other so fermented side foods. <laughs> Typically, yes, but it's a beneficial side effect. So I don't know yeah. if that's the most of the other fermented foods that we think about are, you know, kimchi or kombucha or kefir. Most of those, to be honest, the benefit is in the actual fiber that's in those. Kombucha, there's almost none. So there's your answer right there. They haven't been shown to have good efficacy. There's a, typically most kombuchas is one yeast and two different bacteria that, you know, that, that colonize, but do they pass the the stomach with any efficacy? There hasn't been any good research showing it. Fermented foods like kimchi. Kimchi is actually one of the ones that I, I do recommend, but I recommend it to patients that are having issues or that have zero issues. Patients that are kind of, you know, want to incre increase the health of their microbiome. They can try kimchis and the benefits from kimchi is typically is from the fiber that's present in the cabbages that they typically use in kimchis. It's not from the bacteria that's being added. The bacteria that's fermented in kimchi is so little, and most of it is soil-based bacteria, which typically tend to be good, but they don't, they don't survive very well in the acidic environment of the stomach. Even though they're, they're lactate-producing bacteria, they just don't survive at a pH of 2. So I, I tell people, most people that consume kimchi, I say if it, if it helps you or if it's great and it doesn't upset your stomach, great. But if it does upset your stomach, don't think taking more of it is going to help. Just don't eat it. Right, because it is going to produce maybe some discomfort if it's if it's producing a lot of gas, which you know some high fiber foods can produce gas and flatulence. And if that's a discomfort for you, then don't worry about it because it's not you're going to get you're not getting added benefit from it than just eating other types of fruits and vegetables. Interesting, interesting. So your your PhD thesis, you had mentioned the gut brain axis, mm -hmm. right? And this is another area that sounds more to me like pseudoscience and science fiction. But thankfully, you're on the show and you're going to help to, to sort me out on this. So just explain to me, what is the gut-brain axis? Like, how are these things actually 
communicating with each other. Although episode number three mm-hmm. was with a gastroenterologist who said that the gut is the window to the soul. So, you know, you have agreement agreement with her on, on that, definitely. So so just just help clarify what, what that means. Cause we're we're hearing that the gut microbiome can have, have an influence on issues like autism and Parkinson's and dementia. So so how is that is that real? And if so, how is that possible? So some of these are are tricky, especially for the ones like Parkinson's and dementia. The newer research is coming out is actually pretty good, but the initial research that's showing these indications was actually very poorly done. And that's because you also have to remember that a lot of this is the chicken and the egg phenomenon of is is the, you know, what they typically do is they'll sample 100 patients that have Parkinson's and then 100 that don't. And they'll say, oh, well, these bacteria popped up as being the issue with people that have Parkinson's. Well, are they present? Is it a chicken or an egg situation, right? Was the, Were these the cause of Parkinson's or are these just being predisposed to patients that already have Parkinson's, maybe for dietary or motility issues? Because remember, a lot of the gut is affected by the neurons, right? They There's a, a term that the gut is a second brain. And the guy who coined that phrase was actually the father of neurogastroenterology, and that was Mike Gershon at Columbia, who discovered the serotonin receptor in the gut. He was one of my he was on the, the committee of my thesis. So he's someone that I worked with closely. I spent three months in his lab talking to him about it and kind of wrestling around some of these ideas, but also doing research on what the gut microbiome was affecting the neurons in, in the gastrointestinal tract. So the enteric nervous system, when you think about the gut-brain axis, most of it is a communication between anything that's happening in the gastrointestinal system with the brain. That could be anything from that can be modulated through the neurons, through the parasympathetic nervous system, through the sympathetic nervous system, through the efferents, through the afferents, and then also through um, systemic circulation. Most of the systemic circulation isn't, we originally didn't think was that much because most of this is neuron based, right? And something like serotonin or something like dopamine, most of those won't survive that long in systemic circulation, right? For serotonin platelets, take it up. And then it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. But there are things that are, right? One of the precursors of serotonin is tryptophan. Tryptophan, when you eat it, it gets absorbed. And increasing higher amounts of tryptophan can increase the amount of tryptophan in the brain. And that's kind of one of these fundamental areas of research right now is trying to figure out from a nutritional standpoint what we can modulate to affect the, the brain. Some fundamental or some kind of pivotal research went back uh, back from McMaster. I think it was back in 2011 or 2013, and that's when they figured out that one of the major implications between the gut and the brain is the vagus nerve. Right? We all remember learning about the vagus nerve, but vaguely we remember about its role in the gut. Well, the vagus nerve has has projections all the way to the villi of the small intestine and the colon. And when you sever the vagus nerve in an animal model and you feed it certain bacteria versus not, you do see changes in the brain that have been recapitulated with specific bacteria. Now, there's only one that they're thinking has real proof of being clinically useful, but their clinical trials that they've been using for this bacteria, which is called JB1, hasn't been shown to have good effect in humans. But in mice, they see that the level of the GABA receptor does increase in um, I can't remember the exact uh, spot of the brain, 
but that is one area that they're that they're looking at. The research that I was doing was you're, wait, helping, wait, wait, you're losing me here. You're losing me here. What's the significance of that? So the significance of it is that there are bacteria that could have effects on the brain through the vagus nerve. That is an area that we should really think about and, and really say, okay, are there other bacteria that can do this? How is the bacteria doing this? We don't necessarily know, but we have to remember that when you think about the bacteria in your stomach, it's not the bacteria isn't totally wiped out from, you know, if it's in your gut, then it's beneficial. Bacteria depends on the location of where the bacteria is. So certain bacteria aren't, they don't have no efficacy for having any benefits to the gut unless you put them right up against the epithelial layer where they can interact with some of these neuronal projections that are, that are between the epithelial cells of the gut. And that's the, that's the things that we're learning and that we're now doing research on that we didn't do five years ago because we didn't have the tools, we didn't have the knowledge, and we didn't have the understanding to be able to do that. But then how does it get uh, – so, so it's influencing the vagus nerve, but then how does that translate into something like dementia? That seems to me like such a big leap. Yeah, correct. Right? Like correct. I would and, think it would the the bacteria might have something to do with you know the parasympathetic nervous system and gut motility, but specifically influencing brain activity, like complex centers of the brain. I just don't see that. I can't. I can't make that leap. And that's. And I also that's okay don't have the think- the physiology background of a lot of the stuff that you're discussing. So it, it is it is a little harder for me to follow. But but uh, still, I I just can you help us get there? Yeah. So that's the hard part. Is I think that we there's still a lot of areas that we don't know. We don't know how it's making that. Now we we know that on the neuronal side of the GI of the GI system, there are specific bacteria that can increase the amount of neurons in the gut. So that means that they're increasing how many neurons make up the myenteric plexus or the Auerbach's plexus in the intestine that helps with motility. Now, translating that up through the vagus nerve or up through the parasympathetic nerve system to the brain to create neuronal changes in the brain, that is where we typically fall short. And there are some researchers that are trying to do it live in Italy. There's, there's a good research and there's also one at Duke that's trying to do this. But your questions are good to have because I think that your skepticism is a skepticism we need in science because we're not finding, for example, the bacteria that I was working on, we haven't figured out directly. We saw some behavioral issues, but when we see behavioral issues because of probiotics that we've engineered to do stuff, yes, we know what it's doing in the gut. But on the brain, we don't know what it's doing, and we don't know where it's having these effects. Maybe it could be having these effects because it's affecting motility. And as you know, as anybody knows, go through, have diarrhea for five days, and next thing you know, you feel terrible, you can't sleep properly, you're up at night, you have a little bit more anxiety, you're a little more high-stressed, or vice versa. You can't poop for a few days, and now you're stressed out, your stomach hurts, you're not eating as much, you're trying to drink, but these issues fundamentally do affect our, our emotion and our behavior, but it may not be as, as much as they're just directly affecting a specific spot in the brain, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like my, my follow-up question is, is there evidence in using probiotics to alter or prevent disease in these non-bowel diseases? We're still in our infancy in learning about them. So to think that we can take something, especially after all you said about probiotics, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like we're there yet. But what about for bowel diseases? 
right? What is the effect of the gut microbiome on, say, inflammatory bowel disease? Yeah, for inflammatory bowel disease, I think that there's been some trials that have sh- that have shown that you know some of the probiotics work or could help, and then in the majority of them, there hasn't been. So I think the most recent reviews that they've done for inflammatory bowel disease, whether Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, probiotics haven't been shown to have a big effect. Why is that? Well, you have to think when someone has inflammatory bowel disease, you're not just thinking about the bacteria in there. The the tissue's inflamed, right? The immune cells are activated. And the area that everyone misses, whether in gastroenterology or not, is the mucosal layer that protects protects the epithelial lining of the GI tract. If that mucosal layer is degraded or it's completely destroyed, because in inflammatory bowel disease, a lot of cases it's completely destroyed, throwing back probiotics at it isn't going to help. You need to let the actual cells heal, uh, let the epithelial cells heal, and then you need to have them build back up their mucosal layer for the bacteria to live. Because most of the bacteria live in the mucosal layer, not you know, right up against the epithelial cells, if that makes sense. That's really interesting because as an otolaryngologist, we think a lot about the sin- the sinuses mm-hmm. and mucociliary flow. And a lot of what you're trying to do is restore mucociliary flow and that mucus blanket and, and the direction that the cilia are, are, are pushing it. So, you and, know, and this, this is an years area ago, we think- used to just strip away the sinuses and remove the the mucosa and think that you remove the disease, but then it gets replaced with scar and you just, you need that mucosa and you need that mucus layer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you need, you not only need that mucus layer in the gut, the bacteria actually eat that mucosa layer, right? There's specific bacteria like um, acromantia, um, mucosinophilia that actually use that mucosa layer as a nutrient source. So if that's not present, these bacteria aren't going to be very happy or they're not going to be able to thrive. And they've actually, some newer research is showing out that patients that are in the ICU that have some of this degradation of the mucosal layer, giving them probiotics actually could increase their risk of septicemia. Now you may be thinking, okay, the the link between taking a probiotic and getting it into your blood system seems like that would never happen. But if you look in PubMed, there are multiple articles now proving that it's the same exact strains with some modifications that have gotten from probiotic form into the blood system of some of these patients. Where that's happening, how that's happening, I think that there's still a lot of room for explanation. I think the science is still at its infancy, but that's an area that all this idea of just throwing probiotics or bacteria or trying to make the microbiome more robust, I think there's going to be some times where we have to pump the brakes and think about, okay, what are the real indications and what are the potential cause or harm that we're doing, you know, recommending these or taking these on patients that maybe don't need it. It sounds like it ties into what you said earlier about introducing the probiotic actually being competition that you're introducing rather than improving the function of the bacteria that's already there. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That sounds like that sounds like what they're doing, what they tried to do with the best of intentions in the ICU. Yeah. And, and, when, I, when I'm saying this, a lot of it's from specific strains. Now, there are strains out there that researchers are looking at, specific ones that could help patients with pouchitis or patients with inflammatory bowel disease. But those are specific strains. They're not, you know, or they're specific species. They're not just a blanket over-the-counter recommendation. And so those, until one of those is, is approved by the FDA as that a probiotic on a species level is being recommended for a specific disease process, 
until we get there, the ro the science is not robust enough to recommend it for most diseases, except the, you know, the indications that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. So something that we had talked about before that I want to definitely don't want to miss mm -hmm. is antibiotics, right? Mm -hmm. So antibiotics, we, we're concerned about antibiotic resistance. We're concerned about GI upset. We're concerned about C. diff. But you had mentioned there are some other unintended consequences of antibiotics. So could you discuss that? Yeah, the unintended consequences, I think I actually mentioned in a roundabout way, and that is that most antibiotics will basically slough off the um, mucosal layer of the gastrointestinal tract, or they have unintended consequences of patients that take antibiotics for years at younger ages are at increased risk of having metabolic syndrome or having increased risk of having obesity or type 2 diabetes. Some of these, we're not sure why. Now, there's a lot of theories and a lot of research that's indicating that it could be a um, metagenome level. So some antibiotics may affect the metagenome in the epithelial layer of the gastrointestinal tract that's translating to the pancreas and translating to the liver. And then there's other research that indicating that using antibiotics for long periods of time can affect the amount of short-chain fatty acids that are produced later in life, which is basically like the, the beneficial secondary metabolites that our bacteria produce to actually give us benefit. Doing that, you know, for a long period of time is really, you know, damaging. So one thing that we also talked about before the show is your, your lifestyle choice. You are plant-based. And again, being an, an old fogey myself, I'm only 40, but still. The term plant-based for me is new, and I have no idea what the difference is between plant-based and vegetarian or plant-based and vegan. I know the difference between vegan and vegetarian. I understand enough about that. But this new term plant-based to me sounds like someone who mostly eat plants but couldn't quite give up bacon. Or it's a vegetarian with a PR problem, right? Like, like prunes. Prunes have a PR problem, so they tried to rename themselves dried plums. And it didn't work out so well for them because it's still prunes, but, but plant-based may, uh, may be a little stickier. So, so you describe yourself as plant-based. What does that mean to you and what does that mean to the public? Yeah. So, so first, before we talk about this issue, one of the things that I do want to set straight is there's now in the news a lot of hype for plant-based or veganism, um, especially because a lot of documentaries are you know, really advocates that are really pushing for it. Now, I've been plant-based for over 10 years. And so when I say I've been plant-based, it's not because it's a fad or it's not something that, you know, happened overnight and I want to talk about it. I've been plant-based for 10 years and I don't talk about it that much because that's just a part of my lifestyle of who I am. What is the difference between plant-based, veganism, and vegetarianism? So plant-based, it used to be that plant-based was someone who was vegan who chose not to be associated with the, the PR issue with veganism or vegetarianism. Plant-based was, you know, fully vegan, no animal products. It was no, no meats or no cheeses. It was just fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, whole grains, beans, legumes, those um, specific nutrients. And it was a focus on eating whole foods as opposed to eating processed foods. So you can obviously be vegan or vegetarian and eat only processed foods, right? You can buy those at the grocery store, whereas plant-based was focusing on whole food plant-based, meaning I'm eating right. whole foods. A good uh, example is Oreos are vegan. Correct. Exactly. Oreos are vegan, but would it fall under plant-based? Well, I mean, it depends how strictly you're, you're saying you're a whole, whole food plant-based 
vegan person, you know, that follows that, that diet. Now the difference between vegan and vegetarian is obviously the difference between dairy consumption, cheeses and, and milks. And then there's the lacto-ova vegetarians that consume eggs. And then some people will say they're vegetarian, but they're more pescatarian and occasionally have fish. But plant-based now, in the past probably six months, because of the, the hype of the word plant-based, it has now a lot of people that do consume animal products, whether it's you know chicken or whether it's bacon or whether it's fish, associate themselves with the word plant-based because they say, oh, I'm primarily plant-based. And they do deviate from being strictly plant-based, if that makes sense. So I think that the, the terminology is so new that a lot of people don't necessarily know where they fall. I just say plant-based because it doesn't turn heads. And it, if I say vegan, everyone thinks I'm out going to yell at them because they're wearing leather or fur. When, but that's not my focus at all. My focus is typically on, on just the food. And it's for the reason of um, most of the science that I've studied. So you're plant-based because you want to be left alone. All right, everybody, please take the hint. When you see Frank at a restaurant, just, I mean, you can ask him for his autograph, but please don't harass him about his food choices. He's plant-based. Leave him alone. Yeah. And and my wife laughs because my wife, I mean, she's an omnivore, but she jokes and she tells everyone she's a carnivore. And she does that specifically because she thinks it's funny. I'm plant-based. She's carnivore. She doesn't follow the same diet and it has never really gotten in the way of our relationship. We've been married for you know, over four years. And that really hasn't been an issue. So the idea that it's a stigma that it's, you know, as political as left first, right, isn't necessarily the case for everyone. No, you do what works for you and leave you exactly. alone. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, is there anything related to the gut microbiome that we haven't discussed yet that you think bears mentioning? I mean, there's obviously a ton of research that could be mentioned, right? We know that um, the microbiome is affected by certain things in in our diet, whether that's the amount of choline or the amount of carnitine that someone's consuming, and that gets converted by the bacteria in our stomach to TMA, which then in our liver gets converted to TMAO, which now may, may be a new linker for cardiovascular disease or, or some other illnesses. Those, a lot of the, the science is pretty good is pretty good and pretty robust on it, but using it as a clinical indicator hasn't been, hasn't been established well enough yet. But I think that there's, there are a ton of topics that we could obviously talk about and go over. I would, I would kind of be more interested in just to tell people that if they are interested, if they have questions about the gut microbiome, they can always email me or, or ask me. Obviously I'm a medical student, so I'm busy. I'm studying a lot and I'm actually still working on papers. I'm still doing additional research which as anyone knows in the medical profession is difficult to balance. But I'm happy to answer other questions if you have any, any specific ones. And you must be so tired all the time from not eating any meat. <laughs> That's what they say. But, you know, for a lot I'm of I'm just people, kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just So, yeah, well, I mean, I think that that's actually a great area that people need to be wary of is most people that transition to this diet under consume calories drastically. And if they're plant curious or they're vegan curious or whatever, most of them just don't consume enough calories. Whereas if you consume enough calories, I mean, it could really, it actually is the opposite. It can have a huge energy boost, but you know, it really just depends on, on how you're consuming, but you don't, I mean, this isn't necessarily the healthiest way for everyone. And I tell people that because it depends on what level of uh, scrutiny you're going to look at your food. And if you're just removing things and not replacing it with other things, then you're going to have real issues. And be sure to send a sample of your poop to an unlicensed lab so they can tell you what diet you should be using 
and take your money. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So where can people find you online? Yeah. If they want to find me online, I have both a personal Twitter and Instagram. Twitter, I'm, I'm not that active. On Instagram, a little bit more active. And I share some of the science. Um, I don't give medical advice, but I share some of the science um, about what some of the newer research is showing or, or where it's going in the nutrition front and microbiome front. If they're interested, I do have a medical podcast as well. It's not We don't talk anything about the gut microbiome. We never even talk about plant-based really, except a few episodes. The majority of it are for medical students and for residents where we interview physicians or, or residents that are about to, to finish their training and talk to them about the medical education process. It's called surviving medicine because we all know medicine is hard. Um, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot out of you and burnout's a real issue. So we discuss topics like that on our, on our podcast, um, but it's typically only focused on that, that, that area, but from every different specialty. And then the, the links, I'm sure they'll be in your show notes, but that is survivingmedicine.org. There's Surviving Medicine Podcast. And on Instagram, that's surviving.medicine. Um, if you look us up, you can find us. Dr. Frank Cusimano, congratulations on the PhD. And thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.